Welcome to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. I'm a professor, OD consultant, and change strategist, helping individuals and organizations experience life to the fullest and engaging in positive transformational change. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. Today, I'm visiting with Scott Spann, who is a people strategist, leadership coach, change and transformation consultant, and the CEO of Tolero Solutions. And so, yeah, I came across Scott on LinkedIn. Just, I started following him, was fascinated by his posts, and, and I thought, this is, he's got a really cool um, view on change and, and a real positive aspect of, of people and organizations. And so we found out we had some common uh, connections. And so here we are. So Scott, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about, I know you've got a book that's recently launched. So um, talk a little bit about that. And, and I'm sure it's it's probably a direct reflection of, of your approach to your work and, and just maybe some of the cool projects that you've been a part of or have going on. Yeah, sure. Get right to it. I like that piece. Thank you. Um, but uh, yes, the, the book is actually um, a collaborative book with uh, 33 world-class experts um, from around the globe, myself included. And it is called The Successful Spirit, Top Performers Share Secrets to a Winning Mindset. Uh, and it's now available on Amazon. And the book itself is about focus, drive, and determination. But it's also a book about balance and mindfulness and common sense ways you can take control of your life by harnessing your inner spirit. Um, but my chapter particularly um, is all about authenticity. Uh, so the focus of my chapter is how to access your authenticity to be you and bring you. Um, and from the change perspective um, that we've chatted about before where we have some synergies as well, Jim, right? Um, I do offer a client example uh, around change management uh, and culture and what happens when there's an authenticity misalignment between uh, the leader of the organization or the change leader um, and that culture. Um, and it's very interesting how authenticity misalignments like that um, and cultural misalignments like that can impact change. Yeah, talk a little bit about that because I know that I know um, the idea of alignment is really important and and I've you know actually had a paper from a few years back on you know the alignment between culture and strategy and, and that importance mm, but nice. I, I really am fascinated by what you found in your in your case study and just your approach to the authenticity piece around the leadership yeah uh, sure. alignment so talk a little bit can you tell me a little bit more about that yeah sure study? sure so um you know i highlight the sample in the chapter um but it's not an in-depth case study um which is kind of good for this discussion i go a little bit deeper to answer your question um of course keeping confidentiality um but uh, in this particular situation um the leader was newer to the organization as well and the leader was brought in from the outside so you had all of the people that were already part of the leadership team that were well embedded into this culture um, and helped to shape it into what they wanted it to be um which was not necessarily the same amongst all of them which was a misalignment unto itself which was also interesting and then you have this outsider right who walks into this organization who for reasons i i do not know um i don't say that good or bad just wasn't part of the decision um you know they brought him in knowing that he was not already part of this type of culture um but i guess didn't give consideration to the fact that that may cause somewhat of a rub with current leadership so you know the culture was one of 
I would say lack of transparency to an extent. Um, there wasn't always the best communication uh, amongst departments as well um, and between leadership and um, employees of the organization. Um, and they had an immense amount of projects going on simultaneously. So there were also resource issues uh, as well um, and financial constraints that um, were approaching them too. So all of these things that are going on that are being managed by people that are, you know, kind of tight fisted, who know one another, who know how to look out for each other in their own way kind of thing. And then an outsider comes in, right? Um, and he was a gentleman that was uh, quite charismatic and gregarious. Um, he was very people focused. He believed in transparency. This is all my view from leading the change on this project. Um, and as I had said, the rest of them, most of them anyway, not so much. So immediately, you know, you could see it in the room when he would walk in, they felt put on the spot um, and they immediately went into protection mode um, because there were certain things they just did not want culturally exposed or communicated or whatever the case may be. So in situations like that, the, the, the complete misalignment there was his personality being what it was coming into this organization who was not necessarily comfortable with that type of personality, yet alone, that personality being out there leading change for the organization, uh, you know, and the, the general public, so to speak, um, you know, their customers as well. So it was interesting to see some of those situations transpire and how uh, those folks interacted too. So what, what would you, what would you say are some of the takeaways or what would be some lessons learned that you would share just with other clients? Yeah. So in this situation, I look at it from the perspective of, you know, bringing in a new C-level executive. Uh, so you're hiring someone new into an organization. And with that context, um, and I have used this funny question, I've used this before in a conversation with uh, clients and potential clients um, similarly. And the piece of advice that I offer there from the lesson learned is do your homework and do your homework in your own organization first. Right. So be willing to take a look at your leadership team and own it <laughs> you know, and say, look, these are the dynamics. These are the issues. This is how we operate. This is who we are. This is who we want to be. Right. You know, we've gotten feedback from from customers, patients, whatever. You know, this is what they've said. Here are some things we need to improve on, some misalignments between what the public says and how we operate. You know, get it all out there, get it all in the open, be committed to being the best and most accountable team at that level you can be for this organization. Then when you've got that all situated and you know who you are and who you want to be and how you work together, go find someone that's a fit for that. Right. It's that old adage, right? You know, you, you don't hire just for skills, you hire for skills and culture. You know, equally as important in that regard. Um, Do you think there was a desire to for the organization to become more like that leader that they brought in? Was there was there the desire for more transparency and more authenticity? I believe, and again, personal view, but I believe for some there was. What's interesting is there was a board involved as well. Um, and the board had to approve the selection of the new executive. Um, before he was hired. Uh, and I was only exposed to them one or two occasions and it was just you know, being in the room kind of thing, didn't really know any of those folks. Um, like I did the leadership team I interacted with. Uh, and I think there was a different view too between some of the leadership team and some of the board in that regard as well. So some did want that and some saw why that was necessary. Um, and others, I think, you know, fear of change, you know, fear of the unknown, you know, holding on to my role kind of thing. So I think there was a bit of a rub there as well. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think overall that they were looking for uh, more transparency. 
I also don't think that they realized that for change to be as successful as it can be, because this was a technology change as well as other transformations going on simultaneously. Um, and in certain organizations, you know, they'll still declare success with the change, but that doesn't mean that they've declared success with the maximum return on investment possible for both them and their employees and their customers, right? Um, you check the box of success, but you can still do better in your ROI. And I think this organization was one of those where they would still look at it and say, it was successful without having to have more transparent communication, without having to have you know higher levels of authenticity and all of the other things. Um, so it was kind of a both end in that regard from, from my view um, as being part of the project, which I should preface, um, you know, and, and this is in the chapter two, I actually left that project. So I did not stay on this project for the duration with this particular client because a lot of these things were surfacing. And I knew a lot of these things would derail the success of the change. And I knew a lot of these things would impact, um, you know, customer satisfaction as well. And I didn't see them, despite the data, doing anything about that to try and improve that. So I said, you know what? No, <laughs> this is it's better for all of us in this case. We have a misalignment, right? Authenticity misalignment to begin with, from my view of change and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, that was interesting. That's a that's a great point because I think that a lot of times, especially people when they're first starting out in consulting roles, are really hesitant to either turn down a client or to walk away from a client when that becomes apparent. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I've had on I, one occasion where I walked away or we parted before the end for those very similar reasons. I've also yeah. had a couple at the beginning where when you're kind of doing the, the, uh, the kind of the, the contracting part as Peter Block would talk about yeah. and you find out there's not alignment right from the very beginning in terms of what they're looking for, what you can bring and yeah. And just setting yourself up for like, um, I could probably come in and I could probably make some money, but in the long run, I'm not going to be true to myself. It's not yeah. going to be, it's not going to be, they're not going to get the outcome they want. And then it's going to just look bad you know, for everybody. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it, Jim. That's, you know, in my authenticity chapter in the successful spirit, I address that exact thing. And that's what led me to, to leave this client. And it, it's interesting you bring up that point because I did have the lesson learned from contracting from prior clients, uh, you know, about specifics in that regard. And I thought about it retrospectively and I'm like, what was I thinking with this client that I didn't do the same thing, you know? Um, and I realized too, my own learning, uh, I realized as well with this particular client, first of all, I was asked to do this work by a colleague of mine. Um, so I wanted to honor that. Um, you know, she looked at my subject matter expertise. She worked in a different space. She said, can you do me a favor? Okay. The second piece was that it was the opportunity to have experience, continued experience in an industry to which I wanted to continue to work in as well and get more experience in. Okay. Look what happened, right? I got the experience. And it taught me another valuable experience. But the contracting piece, you know, to Peter Black's piece too, um, yes, it's so important that we pay attention to as change agents up front and make sure that that alignment is there, you know, and that we can check some of our own biases perhaps, um, or at least be aware enough about them to say, okay, we know what we're walking into. So we may have to manage this a bit differently. It's a good point, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it kind of brings to mind, uh, kind of jumping over to your the title of your, your organization that you head up, the um, Tolero Solutions. Uh, talk, tell us where that name Tolero came from, and then I just we can segue right into 
why that's an important piece around change. Sure, sure. I think that's critical. So when I first started Tolero almost 15 years ago, at this point, 14, 15 years ago, uh, my main focus of my work was just change and transformation. So it was important to me in choosing a name for the business that the name reflects such. Um, so I did a lot of research and I came up with about three or four, maybe five um, different potentials that I polled colleagues and friends on and Tolero was one of them. Um, and the reason that I put Tolero into the mix is because of what Tolero means in Latin. So the usage is to endure and sustain. So following it with solutions, Tolero solutions for me, um, you know, aligned to my personal values around change, which was enduring and sustainable solutions for my clients. So when I'm gone, you know, I leave them with the institutional knowledge, skills, tools, you know, to be able to continue to improve in whatever areas around change we've been working together in and do it successfully in the future. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, of like Edgar Schein's ideas around helping and, Schein, and yeah. that idea of not becoming an not becoming an embedded consultant to where um, they need you. And if you're not there, then they don't stick with what, you know, the change doesn't, doesn't stick. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my background too is in organization development and leadership as well. Um, with true OD roots. Um, I think Shine might've said it too, but I know Lewin said it as well, you know, which is from, from the OD perspective around change, we're supposed to work ourselves out of a job. Right. I mean, it's our job to go in and to leave the organization in a better place than where we found it. And part of that is leaving them with the skills and the tools and the knowledge to be able to do things like this on their own just as well in the future. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's funny because that's one of the things that's attracted has been attractive to me over the past 20 years in consulting is is that getting to leave the organization. <laughs> some you want to leave more than others and some you want to stick around right yeah some some it's sad you're like well, I, I made some really good connections or yeah. you know there was just good chemistry and and you you hate to see it end but you feel good about it and then others it's wow this was like the longest three months of my life right and there's lessons there's lessons in both of those right yeah you know, teaches us more about what we want to do what we don't want to do what we like what we don't like you know where we can be most effective as well yeah yeah, and I know for me, um, over time, it seems like early on in my consulting, the lessons learned were about, oh, this is what the organization was doing or not doing, or this is where they missed it, or this is, and then as, you know, as I got older, or as I continue to get older, there's the reflection turns more inward of, oh, here's what I learned about myself, or here's, here's what maybe triggered me, or here's, here's what I missed, or, um, here's an insight I gained about myself. And so, um, which I think is still valuable to the client then. And yeah. Um, yeah. And I hear that. Yeah. I love how you use the word mindfulness with your um, consulting work. So how, how do you integrate that with some of the, the, some of the change work? Yeah. So I, and it's funny you say mindfulness and I laugh a little bit too, because for me, I am very, GSD, get stuff done. I mean, that's what my clients look to me for in a lot of cases is blocking and tackling and driving projects to fruition, but maintaining that people focus at the same time you know, with the empathy, you know, so that they stay committed and engaged. And, you know, I tend to, it's like constantly running, running, running kind of thing in those situations, leading those change projects and whatnot. And I, I have to stop. I have to take a pause. Sometimes I have to breathe. I have to reflect, you know, it's better for me. It's better for them, so to speak. Um, so I started to look into different ways to be able to do that. 
Um, now I say mindfulness, meaning for me, it's just being aware of what's coming up for me at the time. You know, so sometimes it's like I can feel I'm sitting in meetings with clients and I feel the veins going, you know, in the neck kind of thing. And I'm watching and it's like, okay, take that pause, take that breath, which now I can do with my eyes open while still having a conversation. I took practice, you know, and figure out where that's coming from. And to the client benefit, then call the pause, right, and address that. And I do that a lot in my coaching work as well when I do transformational coaching work with clients. Um, so I don't practice it to the extent of, you know, true mindfulness methodologies that a lot of my peers do. I adapted from those what works best for me, um, which is that pause. And I do incorporate that into my work as well. Um, and I'll usually do it, you know, for example, um, and you're probably familiar with this, you know, right before big change projects go live, everybody's on edge, you know, I, it's running around chicken with your head cut off. Everyone's it's on fire. And everyone's like, ah what's it going to be like all this uncertainty and ambiguity, you know? So I'll take, you know, somewhat of a, a slow your roll approach, which is a component of mindfulness in that regard. Um, you know, and I'll do some levity with them uh, with those particular groups, you know, it goes beyond like rah, rah. Um, but I will bring in the humor and I will bring in the music and I will bring in the creativity aspects um, because, you know, I'm a creative person myself. I write, I paint. So I like to incorporate those aspects, which I have learned are components of mindfulness as well you know, just to kind of help center folks and just bring them back a little bit out of that anxiety phase right before we do a go live. Um, and I've gotten feedback. People are very appreciative of that as well. Um, so for me, it's a little bit different than just the breathing and, you know, and the, and the yoga that some other folks do or those types of, of mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated about how you're, you mentioned um, the, the, uh, the art and the, mm -hmm. and the writing. How, how does that, how is how do you kind of incorporate that into some of what you do and then i imagine that helps you then working with leaders for them to for them to be able to integrate things that they do that um can where they can be more integrative as a leader yeah yeah well it's funny because now i've got legos on the mind because um twice in the last month i've spoken to um folks that uh, use the lego methodology for creativity and team performance and and, and all of that um and i've been toying around with um incorporating some of that work as well in that regard. But um, I've done exercises with folks at the beginning of a project, for example, um, you know, it's often as simple as taking a, I almost said AI, but these days it means something different, an appreciative inquiry approach to things as well, right? Um, you know, and starting things off on a positive note, and I'll ask folks just the basics. If you had three wishes for this project, what would they be? But instead of writing them down, draw them, right? If you had three concerns, and they'll, usually it's, you know, teams of folks together, um, you know, if, you know, same thing with um, what are your top three concerns, you know, draw them. Usually I'll do that one first and then the positive, you know, but getting the visuals out of folks. And it's interesting to watch groups when they do. I'm not an artist. I'm not an artist. I can't draw. I can't, you know, I'm not Picasso either. It's, you know, it's, it's where your brain goes when you're using those parts of your, your brain as opposed to, you know, other parts of your brain. You, you tend to, Again, like it relaxes people a little bit and engages them at a different level. Um, so using more of the visuals. And, um, you know, I'll also do work with graphic facilitators when the work calls for it. I am not one of them, even though, you know, I am an artist to an extent. I can't keep up with the way that they do that on the giant flip charts that look so yeah, pretty, it, right? That's, that's amazing to watch in real time. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really, really neat. And now people um, have moved over to Mural. So I've just started to play around with Mural as well. Um, and other online tools um, that are similar, you know, to try and do that more digitally, 
since we've had to make this COVID pivot over the last year um, as well. Um, and then music, I've made change soundtracks for clients. So I have, so, and I'm not a musician, I just like to bring that piece in because it reframes the mind a little bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of the, the tracks will come from the group themselves, the organization themselves, the change leaders. Um, you know, I will ask them to you know, pull your team for what their favorite, most motivational track would be. Um, and then those can be leveraged into videos and short little snippets you know, to drive motivation and engagement as well, leading up to and during um, go live for change too. Um, you know, you've probably seen some of them online. Organizations do really funny videos like that, you know, where the people, you know, you're going around and they're singing the different song and they've got their go live capes on and all that, but it matters. It puts a different mindset. So those are kind of some of the ways that I've incorporated the music, um, you know, and the art. Um, the writing one is, you know, a little bit, a little bit easier in that regard. People are more comfortable, you know, with that. Um, I had one client ask for haiku. I said, I haven't done that in years. I said, but sure, we can play with that, you know, <laughs> so whatever they're open to. I, I think that's that's awesome because those are those are techniques that we find just in our personal life that that bring us joy or, or satisfaction or, you know, fulfillment. And and yet. Organ when we get into an organization, we think, no. You can't have fun. You can't do anything. You know, it's, it's just all business. And that idea of integrating the humor, the music, the art, I think that's, I think more organizations could really benefit from integrating that into, into their change efforts yeah, and just, and, and just more embedding it in their culture. And that's the big piece, right, Jim? Yeah. The, the cultural component, there are organizations that, I would say at the team level, so the folks that are usually part of the governance for change, but not necessarily the ELT, the executive leadership, but whatever the organization chooses to call the one below that, the doers, right? Those folks are like, oh yeah, let's do this. This is different. This is fun. You know, you try and do that at the leadership level, and this is not the culture of our organization. <laughs> you get that kind of response from folks, you know? So it's also, you have to know the client. You have to understand the culture. And I mean, I do that homework up front to get that information, you know, before I would try certain things. In some instances, I get permission from leadership to do it with these other groups, but yet they have no interest, but they're happy with the result. Okay. You know, you, you I, wonder if, I wonder if at the senior leadership level, if there's more of, you know, a, a fear of looking foolish or coming across as less than professional or, you know, or maybe not as competent it and in doing something musical or artistic as they are in their other part of their role. And so Definitely. I think there's probably yeah. a lot of, of apprehension and fear and trust issues. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. And that, you know, that's an interesting piece too, because what that brings up for me, which I've observed before um, in these type of situations, just around change in general is it's an optics piece right, for a lot of leaders, which often ties to inadequacies um, of their own, where sometimes they don't have them, but they think they have them. Other cases, they do have them, um, you know, or skills that they know that they're, you know, weak in, as they would say, or underdeveloped in, um, I've had them say, you know, things like that. And I can't show that to my people. We're leading change now. Well, let's circle back to authenticity for a second, right? <laughs> if you're being authentic with your people and you're being transparent with your people, first of all, that's going to form more trusted relationships with your folks overall, right? So performance is only going to improve because of that. They see you as human. Separate from that, 
they may have skills in these areas where your people, your folks can turn around and help teach you, right? And peer-to-peer learning. And again, strengthens relationships and performance. Oftentimes they realize that. Um, and it's funny too, because sometimes around change, you know, I've done a lot of covert coaching. It's what I call it over the years where I'd be on a, a change project and I'm sitting around the table with these aforementioned folks of these leadership teams and governance groups. And I'm tracking what's going on on multiple levels of the system. And I'm watching the dynamics in the room. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, mm-mm. you guys are not going to have a successful change. This is not going to work. You have to deal with all of these other issues that are bubbling up and some that have probably been longstanding, you know, at least surface them before you can even align yourselves and support each other in making this change successful. And then that often turns into team coaching, right? Which is what are these? How do we surface these? And sometimes bigger chunks of consulting come out of that, you know, DEI stuff and, you know, strategy pieces. But then the interesting one is after the leaders see what's going on, you know, with the team overall, the leader will often say, come here, <laughs> pull you aside. Very rarely they say it in front of everybody. What are these behaviors I need to know to be successful in lead change? What, what are these actions I need to practice to, to get my people committed? What, what do I need to model again? What does that look like? And then that often turns into more you know, transformational behavioral coaching for the leaders, which only benefits the organization overall as well. So it's, it's interesting to see how sometimes those inadequacies or you know, areas where they may feel they don't have skills you know, play out in the, in the long run around yeah, change. That's, I, you know, when you have somebody... You, you kind of see the light bulbs going on in their head mm-hmm. and then somebody pulls you aside after a meeting and says, Hey, can we, can we kind of chat offline or just, I don't want to pick your brain about something or, or you just get an email saying, Hey, something came up in the, in the, you know, in the group session, I, you know, that's something I've been grappling with. I love how you talked about the, the covert um, coaching. Yep. So yeah. um, I've never had, um, I've only had one project that was pure coaching and it, it wasn't something I really enjoyed, but like doing the, the, the more large group interventions. And then when it just naturally flows into having some one-on-one conversations mm-hmm. with leaders, to me that that's been more effective for me as opposed to going in and doing one-on-one leadership coaching. That's just not my expertise. I, I admire people that can do that, but, I love how you've brought that up because you, you also do individual leadership coaching too, as well, right? I do. I do. And a lot of that coaching focuses on accelerating performance, you know, overcoming obstacles of whatever those may be for the leaders. Um, but when you drill down, you know, in, into what a lot of those areas are, these other things around, you know, where they feel that they're not skilled or highlighting areas where they feel that they're being congruent and authentic, but they're really not, or they're, you know, their say doesn't equal their due from a communication perspective, you know, so they're like, oh, that's why my people say I don't make sense or they're afraid of me. It's not what I mean. You know, all these other things um, will tend to surface in that regard, um, which is really interesting. Um, but the the real fun ones to coach in that regard um, are the ones that can, you know, truly make a difference by having the desire to truly make a difference. So I call them boomerang leaders, might have heard ripple effect leaders, right? So as they get their awareness raised around certain things, or as they, you know, discover a new, better way of doing things, they bring that back to their team. And then they bring that back to the organization. And then everybody is learning and you're strengthening relationships at the same time. And it's better for employees and it's better for customers as well. Um, so even my coaching has been, you know, focused on that 
transformational realm of things. Yeah. Have, have you found some of your individual coaching clients expanding to the organization then from that perspective or? It's, I make the push, <laughs> you know, in that regard as part, you go back to contracting, right? But contracting from a coaching perspective, I, I will contract around that. Uh, which is, you know, the expectation of any learnings that you bring forth that can benefit the organization uh, overall or the teams um, that you lead, that you do share that information with them and you do get feedback on how you exhibit these new behaviors or how you try out these new actions. Um, and when it's in there, I've referred to it a couple of times and say, hey, 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 we have to sit yeah, I, I, I could see, you know, and just from reading about some of your work and just your, your personality that comes out, I could see a leader saying, Scott, this is some really good insight. Could you share this with the whole leadership team? Or we've got, can you bring this perspective to our department or a group meeting? And, and the thing, thing on that one is, um, and I, I've had that before and with coaching, it's privacy and confidentiality. So, I mean, nothing, I, as the coach will not share anything. Um, however, I will say to them, Okay, this is your awareness. This is your observation. This is your learning. You know, how would you like to share this with your team? You know, and sometimes it's guiding them, you know, to get comfortable with how they want to present it. And other times there's tools behind it, um, you know, where they can facilitate that discussion. Um, and I'm more fly on the wall. Sometimes I'm not even there for those discussions because that would be more of a consulting relationship than a coaching relationship. But when they come back to me, you know, and they tell me they did it, you know, I get like an excited kid too. And I'm like, well, what was the response? tell me how to go kind of thing and genuinely so and it's the mix of feedback is always interesting too because you know then when you hear leaders are often being hard on themselves you know because this is new to them and a vulnerability right i'm a huge brene brown fan uh, she's quoted yeah. in the chapter in my book as well um but you know leaders and vulnerability it's like mm, i don't want to show this to my team but there's learnings to be had in that too so i like to be a fly on the wall at least when they have these discussions um you know and bring this information back to their teams um sometimes i get lucky and it works in reverse from a coaching perspective which is then they'll you know share this with their teams and change some processes and behaviors and get some feedback and then say okay coach my team you know coach my my managers you know and these type of things as well um and that way you know you can kind of see it a little full life cycle because coaching is not necessarily always full life cycle you know in that regard as well and neither's change i guess yeah do you find most of your um, coaching comes from the individual or from the organization requesting it for an individual? It varies. So like many coaches these days, I partner with certain coaching platforms. So as well as, you know, my own client load and, um, you know, the platforms usually are focused on, um, you know, the team coaching regardless, because the bigger organizations use the platforms for scale frankly. You know, it's like, I have to go and, you know, coach 150 people and whatever we've decided we need to coach 150 people on. And I've got to do it in like a month. Well, you need scale <laughs> to do that. Um, you know, so in that regard, um, you know, the, a lot of the team coaching comes, um, you know, through those particular areas, or it'll come from a leader. Yes. That, you know, we'll have an awareness around something and say, wow, we need to work on this culturally. Like some of the DEI coaching I've done around diversity and inclusion related issues. It didn't start out that way, started out working with a leader. And then the leader takes a look at their leadership team after, you know, we worked together around this for some time and they've noticed some things and they're like, oh, wait, yeah, I, I you know, I, I see these particular issues here. I don't see these type of people as part of my leadership team. And I know that that's important. So how can we get these voices heard? You know, what changes do we need to make? Sometimes it even goes to recruitment and talent management. 
you know, they'll really see it and they'll go back to those people and they'll be like, look, let's work on this stuff kind of thing. Um, but, you know, from me directly, um, you know, my direct clients, yeah, they tend to be more um, individual or group sometimes as well. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the whole idea of the, the presenting issue is often not the real issue. Mm-hmm. The iceberg, and, right? Yeah. 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 And I'm sure that that's very true with the coaching piece that you, you're just getting the, the, the things above the surface. And as you engage in conversations with the leadership, it, you begin to get a hint at what's below the water level. And, yep. and then that's where your expertise as a consultant comes in. You're be able to see patterns or recognize yep. um, things that unseen things that are going on and systems view. It's a systems view. You know, one thing I'm very cognizant of too is, you know, contractually they're always separate, right? So, you know, when I'm coaching a client that is not advice mode, that is not mentoring mode, you know, that's not even lessons learned mode, really, you know, that is guiding them and supporting them and they're doing the work. Um, Now, sometimes I'll have clients say to me, you know, particularly leaders in these types of situations around change and whatnot, awareness stuff, you know, they'll say to me, oh, well, how did this work for a leader in the past? Or what was the outcome in this situation when you work with a client on this? And I'll tell them, you know, pause, you know, first of all, do your own work. (laughs) This is coaching. You do your own work first, come with your own actions, right? You know, then after you do a little bit of your own work, I'm happy to have a lessons learned best practice conversation with you separate from coaching because that is more consulting. Um, But that being said, yes, then, you know, it does lead in often cases to a separate consulting engagement or a follow-on consulting engagement. Um, Happens the other way around too sometimes as well. Um, But it's always interesting to see you know, when leaders get that, like you said, they get the light bulb, you know, those enlightened leaders, as I call them, want to continue to do that work and make better for the organization as well. And then sometimes leaders, which we do as people, period, you know, excuse me, we'll retreat a little bit, you know, so, oh, wait, and they need to sit within a process. It, that's okay. You know, um, so it's, you never know what's going to happen. You, you never know how people are going to internalize, you know, that, that level of awareness and how they're going to take it forward. It's interesting. Uh, I, and I, I love how you mentioned Brene Brown, because I think she's she's really transformed so much of our field mm-hmm. and just made it made it OK to talk about things like, like you know, inadequacies or um, the, the pitfalls of being a perfectionist and and what it really means to be authentic and and why empathy is is so critical. Yeah, the empathy piece. The empathy piece is another huge one, you know, that I try and incorporate into work across the board, whether it's coaching or consulting. Um, And the empathy piece ties to our vulnerability piece too, you know, as well. And leaders I have found have been more and more okay these days with empathy and, you know, practicing empathy and showing empathy um, than they used to be. What do you think is is kind of behind that? maybe lack of empathy or the lack of willingness to show empathy. And then what's, what's shifting in, yeah, from your sure. perspective? I mean, my, my two cents are from, and from client experience, um, you know, the, the lack of empathy uh, oftentimes, um, well, it ties to certain industries, not uh, I'm thinking about it as well, more so than others. Um, of course, more regulated industries, um, you know, industries where there's jobs for life, that kind of thing, you know, there tends to be a, a little less, empathy and importance and empathy because people are going to lose their jobs for that. You know what I mean? They're like, I have a job regardless. It's so I am, so who cares kind of thing. Not all, but in certain industries that are like that. Um, 
But I think part of the reason that leaders are hesitant to show empathy is because of the fact that, you know, they are the leader. I am the leader of this organization. So there's still somewhat of a mentality that my people can't see me as fully human. They see me as the leader and I have to maintain this persona of being a leader. And plus I maintain this persona of being a leader because it makes me feel safe as well, right? Because then I don't have to worry about anyone poking holes or pulling back the curtain on certain things either. Um, and I think you used to see a lot of that. I use the the analogy a lot. Did you see the 80s movie Nine to Five? Yeah. With uh, Lily Tomlin and, um, oh God, who was the other one in it? Dolly Parton. Um, Dolly, Dolly Parton is the one I remember. Jane yeah, Fonda. Jane Fonda, thank you, was the one I couldn't remember, Jane Fonda, yeah. You know, but the boss in that one, right, is a perfect example, no empathy. And that was an era where you could technically say that was an era of no empathy. That was what was expected of a boss back then, right? I think that era has like, well, I'd like to say it has passed. It hasn't entirely passed, but we're getting there. Um, and part of that to the other side of your question, I think as to why you're seeing more is because there's you know, a generational shift going on as well right now, right? I mean, you see different numbers on it. I do generational diversity work as well. And I do workshops around that. And it, it's always interesting to see people get hung up on the, the numbers or the years or whatever, but the traits themselves for certain generations um, do predominantly hold true, right? And you look at Gen Z now, for example, um, you know, people often say, who they, who's Gen Z, who's millennials? Gen Z think Parkland students, right? I mean, they took that terrible, awful situation that happened, you know, and they said, we're not going to sit in our laurels about this. We're going to cause positive change. We're going to make our voices heard, you know, and we're going to do it in a direct but empathetic manner, you know? And if you watch the ones that have become the face, so to speak, um, I think that they do that fairly successfully, right? They expect the same in their leadership at work. Right. So as th that generation becomes more and more of the workforce, it's not just about what you always hear, you know, about the flexible work arrangements and whatnot. You know, they look for outward empathy. They look for outward inclusion. I mean, outward as they can see it. Right. They look for outward inclusion and diversity. These are things that are important to this growing demographic of the workforce and this very vocal growing demographic of the workforce. And I think leaders have picked up on that as well you know, to say, okay, I need to adapt my style as my organization continues to change a little bit. And that these people value that, right? And it's not to say, and I, I will just caveat, it's not to say that other generations don't necessarily feel the same way, but this is also, you know, the generation of technology to a T, right? I mean, how, how many different ways to make your voice heard did they take advantage of that are out there, right? Neither positive nor negative, it just exists now, right? And I think that also plays a role as well you know, over you know, potentially other generations who may have felt the same way, but didn't know how to get that message out there so that leadership would hear it or feel it. Yeah, I think there's certainly been an evolution of, of leadership thought. Um, I, I think back to, um, to to my own like growth in terms of my perspective. I remember when I was first starting to, to teach, you know, 30 years ago when I got, I'm 59. So 30 years ago when I got my PhD at 29. Oh, wow. I remember using a clip from the movie U571 with, with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And I, and I used a clip from that in combination with a quote that I had come across that said, it was an old Navy quote that said, a frightened captain makes for a frightened crew. Mm -hmm. And there was a scene in, in that movie where one of the, the enlisted officer takes Matthew McConaughey aside and says, you can't show any fear. You can't show 
any apprehension. You can't show any self-doubt, you know, that the crew will lose, you know, you'll lose the crew. And, and he went through this whole thing and it's like, oh, okay, that's the role of the leader is to be this, this stalwart that is unwavering, that has no, you know, that's infallible. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, like I've come 180 degrees from that. I'm sure there's still maybe some relevance in certain, you know, you know, highly critical areas like that with being on a submarine and being combined. Oh, sure. <laughs> right. But it, but it's just interesting when I think back to that and I'm like, uh, I wouldn't use that example anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's kind of, I, I use a lot more Brene Brown examples and, yeah. um, and I, I, you know, the, the word authenticity I think is so, so critical. And I think even in that situation, people can see when somebody's faking it. Exactly. And she says that too. I think that's in her anatomy of trust video as well, you know, with the genuine piece. Um, and that, and that's extremely true. You know, people pick up on that. So it's like, I, and I tell clients that around change too often, don't bother unless you're being genuine. I mean, all you're going to do is add more aggravation. <laughs> you know, it's not going to help. Not going to help. So practice in the mirror if you have to, yeah. but make it real. Yes. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, it's yeah, interesting I, you brought up the, the military analogy. You got me thinking too, because I do a lot of DOD work um, down here as well. And, you know, very interesting cultures um, and not all the stereotypes all true, frankly. Um, you know, I've had the privilege of working with some admirals who are very people focused people. It's just so new to them, you know, as to how to actually do that within their current environment, as opposed to when they were in theater or deployed, it's a little bit different kind of thing. Um, but, you know, that command and control mentality that overall is still very military, uh, the way that that, at least the way I've observed it, you know, being practiced from a leadership perspective has been changing. And uh, Stanley McChrystal has been good about that. Uh, you know, he's been doing a lot of writing lately as well. Um, some of it, um, you know, maybe a couple of years old at this point, uh, but a very people focused leader and gets the importance of empathy and gets the importance, you know, of being there for your people, not just in the, you know, military got your back, you know, in the field kind of way, you know, but what's going on home kind of way. Um, you know, so here you have a general who, you know, climbed the ranks, you know, with one, I guess you could say style of leadership being taught and instilled, you know, and then went on to change and adapt his leadership style so that he could be more effective, you know, both in military and outside of military. So even that's evolving now, which is, which is good. Yeah, I think being able to um, be open to your own evolution mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, you know, one of the projects I've had students do in, in an organizational change classes, um, they have to do it, they have to do a project for an organization, but then they also have to do a personal change project. Yeah, okay. And, and I've, I've had so many people say, wow, I, I thought I was really good at change or, but then when I realized when I have to step back and like change some habit of mine, it, it's like, ah, it's not quite as, I'm not quite as change ready as I thought I was, or, you know, they, they think, well, it's the organization that's struggling with change. I love change. And then when they, you know, and I use the switch book by the Heath brothers oh, yeah. um, to have them apply that to um, some type of habit, or, you know, some type of behavioral change, but um, yeah, I think that, yeah. You know, and it's interesting because Hershey and Blanchard, you know, mm -hmm. 50 years ago talked about situational leadership. I was thinking that, yeah. And then and, you have Lillian Lippin and White as well. With yeah. Their, yeah. Yeah. So it, those those kind of foundational pieces still apply. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and I am not one to throw out the foundational pieces. It's applicability, right? So I'll often, you know, see things on LinkedIn um, and it's repurposing theorists that, you know, we know from 50 years ago, right? Like I saw one about uh, Chris Argyris and his letter of inference. And, you know, I was privileged enough to meet him at a OD network conference and I had a conversation with him um, more so about his tops, middle, bottoms theory than I did about the letter of inference. But I was reflecting back in my head and I'm like, wow, the way that he had intended that model and methodology to be utilized is not how it's necessarily being utilized today. However, that's not a bad thing. Here's a model that was developed years ago that has been tweaked and morphed and is still at the base fundamentally applicable in multiple ways in organizations today, the ladder of inference. You know, no matter how you make it pretty on like, you know, the, the pictures are different, the slides are different, you know, but the concept. Yeah, but the uh, the underlying theory pieces. Yeah, right, right. Part of it is it's still valuable. there. And force field analysis, that's another one, you know, that's that's been repurposed from Lewin as well. Um, so there's a, there's a lot like that that I see coming back. Yeah, in yeah, new ways. In new ways. It kind of it, yeah, it kind of reminds me of some of the pieces in the Change Handbook. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to think who I know. Peggy Holman is one of the authors of that, but they, it's one of those that has, you know, a dozen authors. But that's one of the things they stress in that is making it your own, picking, choosing yeah. two different, three different methodologies, and then tweaking them, adapting them to fit the organizational needs. Exactly, and you, the you're client. Gonna, <laughs> you're gonna get me at a soapbox on this one, Jeff. So I have this conversation with people because I've worked for Fortune 500 consulting companies, you know, on and off um, since I've had my own business. And I was with one um, for years before I started my own business and nothing, no ill will about them by any means. Um, but I find it interesting. They all have their own methodology, right? If you look at where their methodologies were developed from, it's the founders of the field of OD and change, right? <laughs> they just repurpose them and they repackage them. Um, however, that's their model. That's their methodology. That's what they go to market with. And I had an authentic, another story about authenticity for you. So I had an authenticity rub when I was working with one of these organizations because, you know, with the, with the OD and systems lens and having multiple tools in my toolkit, you know, I would look and I would say, no, this is not the best one to apply in this situation. I get it's yours. I get you own it. I get it's what you want to push, but it's not in the best service of the client to use this particular methodology for this particular type of change. You know, there's other ones out there. So I would mix and match and integrate, you know, I mean, I would pull some bridges in because I'm a big fan of bridges and transition and focusing on that piece as well as change. Um, I would pull in Galbraith with the star model familiar with yeah. the strategy piece and the culture piece a little bit, um, you know, and some Lewin, but I have all these, you know, in a toolkit and I don't say here is Lewin's model. Here is Galbraith's model. You can follow this and use it. They don't care. I mean, the client, right. But yet, integrating those pieces, which are still relevant, you know, and attaching them in such a way that it aligns to the project and it aligns to the methodology that's already there so that these people can focus on them is something that, you know, I truly believe in. It is not a one size fits all hammer and nail approach to change. That is the Scott Soapbox, uh, one of them. That drives me nuts, right? You should have a good change agent, you know, or a good OD practitioner, you know, should have a toolkit to select various models from or frameworks from and have an understanding of the culture and the organization enough to be able to mix and match and adapt the methodology and framework. And I'm not just talking theoretical, I'm talking about the plan associated with it for implementation as well. 
you know, but be able to adapt all of that in the best interest of the client and their culture. It is not a one size fits all hammer nail approach. So you got me on a soapbox in that one. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of like if, you know, this past year I bought a circular saw, but it's like, I, you know, every time I have something around the house to do, I don't be like, Oh, I got to use the circular saw. There you go. Yeah. I've got to use that tool. Right. right. Doesn't matter what it is. It, I'm going to use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I got to fix this light switch. I'm going to use the circular saw. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's a picture in that one. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of the SWOT, the traditional SWOT analysis. I mean, I think it, it bits and pieces of it are useful, but I, I like using the SOAR um, model. The goals, yeah. And, but yet with several clients, they, they want a SWOT analysis. Mm -hmm. That's what, they what they're, that's what they're comfortable with. And so what I've done is I've given them that, and then I'll just, we'll do that like through the morning and then transition into the sore piece. And the, yeah. the feedback has been, oh, wow, this is, I, I like this lens. So they, I, I don't tell them that we're not doing a SWOT. It's just, it's just a different um, piece to it, but it's it's finding that middle ground of what the client is comfortable with you know it seems like a lot of senior leaders are really comfortable with um cotter's eight step change model oh, yeah that and prosci yeah those two are are just have a lot of corporate um sponsorship and yep. so being able to incorporate some of that even if it's not neither of those are really what what i'm really drawn to but but I've used both of those in that context of, and then you pick and choose and they're like, Oh, I, I didn't realize this was, right. you know, you, you bring in Galbraith's model, the star model and, and people are like, I didn't realize that was part of Cotter. <laughs> they're like, what is this piece? What is that? Piece? I didn't know these things were connected. And oftentimes it's interesting too, right? Because they're, you know, they'll, they'll see a name, but again, like the end client doesn't care. Right. Like, oh, this is by this Galbraith guy. Okay, that's great. But the fact that the strategy piece is included in here with the culture piece, and that aligns to what we're trying to do, that makes sense to us. Yeah, yeah and, and you might mention, it, it, even within the same you know system, you might drop Cotter's name with the senior leadership team. But if you're talking with frontline supervisors, they're not really going to care so much. And so, yes. Um, and I've used different models to that point too, right? So senior leadership, you know, they love ADCAR. Right. So, okay, fine. We can look at Adcar, you know, or Cotter is another big one. Um, you want to use one of those terminology? Fine. However, you know, you go one down and I'll often use bridges because those people that are truly being impacted by the change need to focus on both the change piece and the personal piece around transition. So for them, those components of bridges are more of a fit. And, you know, leadership's like, oh, Okay, he wrote this book. Uh, okay, good. You know, like, like fine, do it if it makes the most yeah, sense. Yeah, I'm a big fan of bridges, and and where I found it really useful is that you know that that ex, the, the the kind of that curve of acceptance and the transition phases. Mm -hmm. I like sharing with the leadership team of how kind of like multiple, like if you were doing the old transparencies that you had on the projector, yeah. how leadership is at this phase of the transition you know, middle management might be here and then the rest of the organization's here and and that understanding that different people are at different phases yes. of the process simultaneously and, you know. And have different needs because of that. And it's addressing right. the needs of where these people are and not just, you know, one size fits all again, you know, everybody should be here. How often have you seen the, the refurbished versions of the change curve? 
right? Yeah. Clients love that one too, because it's nice and simple. Um, it's good for grounding, but you know, and then you're working your way up to engagement, commitment, you know, all the way up. And you know, what I keep telling them is, okay, you guys as leaders, you need to be an engagement and you need to be a commitment way in advance <laughs> of, you know, the rest of the folks on your team and the rest of the organization, you know, and then the folks that are part of your team that may be part of the governance one level down from you. Okay. They need to get through the awareness phase to the understanding phase and much faster than this group does. Right. So, you know, not everybody is going to be at the same place at the same time, nor should they be kind of thing. Although, yeah. although I've seen you know, organizations would, there's some that are like, okay, we're going to put a, build a Gantt chart to manage this change project. And so we're going to like allocate this many weeks for <laughs> this part of bridges yeah. model, you know, and then we'll, you know, and kind of overlaying it with Cotter. So, you know, the, we'll, we'll do the coalition for three weeks and then we'll do this, yeah. this step. And so we'll be through all eight steps in, in nine months. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Cause I have to project plan. You got a project plan. Yeah, you know, and I, it's funny you say that. I'm laughing because I do a lot of technology adoption work, technology transformation, digital transformation. And look, I mean, when you're implementing technology, you are on a hard and fast deadline, right? I mean, your build has to be done by a certain date. You know, your implementation deployment has to be done by a certain date and you better hit that switch. Right? And from a change perspective, then that makes it a little bit more difficult in certain situations because you can't guarantee that people are all going to be where they're quote supposed to be, you know, by a certain time just because it aligns to a plan. However, I'm going to go live on that particular date, regardless of where these people are at or not. You know, so when I do those type of projects, I do stress that to the client, which is change does not necessarily move along the project plan at the same pace as a technology build and deployment does. Right? Yeah, I think. Wow, I mean. It there's a whole book right there, Scott. I think you could, you could really like carve out a cool niche, just bringing in that perspective. I like that one. That aligns with my keep it real approach too. tell hard truths, keep it real, get stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's sometimes a rub around technology, right? Because we're spending all of this money. I had a client that had that happen and frankly, they screwed up in the build phase period. But the reason they screwed up in the build phase was people related. Right. So their vendor was just basically building to stock the way they were supposed to, right? And I mean, they had enough feedback to know, you know, there were minor customizations needed here and there, yet they offered their people the opportunity to provide full workflow details to be incorporated into this technology build. They did not incorporate, the build team did not incorporate all of this workflow into the build. So then we got to training. So these people go into training and they're like, this is not what I do every day. This is not my process. I told you what my process was, or I told my leadership who told you, we're supposed to tell you what my process is. So why am I training on this? Does this make any sense to me? And that's different than this doesn't make any sense to me because it's new, right? right. This, is, this is, this doesn't make any sense to me because this is not what I do on a daily basis kind of thing. So they had to stop the build, right? And there was, a, there was enough pushback from enough people at high levels, the way this organization was structured too, to say, no, 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 no. You asked us for our voice. You did not listen to our voice. Now you have this product that we cannot use in our best interest, yet alone to, you know, service our clients the best way possible. So no, you're going to take the pulse. And then that ended up setting everything back a good three months regardless. Whereas if they had actually done, and by the way, I wasn't part of this at the upfront piece. I came in for mop up just to preface. <laughs> but if they had done all of this upfront and done the data collection upfront and actually listened 
and gave that information to the build team and had, you know, someone with a skill set like mine, for example, who can speak enough technology, you know, this is why I'm also a scrum master and, you know, agile, I know, and stuff like that, um, you know, but speak enough technology to these teams to be able to say, here's why people stuff is important. Here's why you have to include this. Here's how, and then be able to translate any issues back to the non-technical. You wouldn't have had this problem, right? So it still comes down to people and a people piece process too, but really a people piece around change. Yeah. It happens when they try and do that because they wanted to meet schedule. You know, yeah. we had to meet deadline. What happened? You were three months behind anyway. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's critical. Well, Scott, I'm looking at the time here. I want to be respectful of, of Thank you. your time that, that you offered me. And so uh, this has been, this has been a great conversation. And so, uh, and I'll be sure and share in the description of the podcast, the, the um, information on your, on your book piece. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, yeah, appreciate I, that. And thank you for the idea and another one because I jotted that down too. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. glad to. I, I'm, I look forward to that. I'll I'll, I'll uh, check in with you from time to time and say, hey, how's that? How's that coming? Yeah, I want to yeah. use this. I want to use this in my classes. Yeah. Oh, hey, there you go. That's a now that's a real accountability partner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now the pressure's on. Right. Right. I'm going to tell my students we'll be using this book in in you know fall 2022. Well, that's some serious yes. pressure. Yeah. <laughs> light a fire, light a fire. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time, Jim. And yeah, it was a, it was a good, good conversation. So thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. If you want to connect more, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and at my website, drjimmaddox.com. Thanks for listening.